Okay, please uh, find Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Verse 18 begins with the word for in the middle of a very long argument that doesn't end until really till chapter 3. I'm going to read you verses 18 to 21. So read along with me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, it's interesting that that's in past tense, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. As I said, we're in the middle of a we're in the middle of a pretty long discourse here, an explanation here of wrath and gospel salvation, the apostles, the New Testament prophets bringing the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apostle who is ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God and the salvation for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God. The gospel's revelation of wrath changes the priority of the gospel. Remember the word gospel means good news. And there there may very well be a hundred or a thousand issues of good news across the world tomorrow or this next week. But this particular gospel is contrasted with God's wrath. The gospel revelation of God's wrath changes your priority to his gospel. It changes what you think about the priority of the gospel. Doesn't it? The wrath of God is against ungodliness. It's against unrighteousness. It's against ungodliness. It's against unrighteousness. The first wrath-compelling sin in the gospel is not theft. It's not lying. It's not adultery. Unless 
you think maybe a little more carefully, the, the theft of God's glory, lying about God's glory, and adulterating your, your affection and your allegiance to some thing or somebody other than the only true God. But it's a compelling point made here. The first wrath-compelling sin is against the ungodly and against the unrighteous. If we were to ask our peers about the end of life, what happens when you die? What happens when they die? The end of life, you would have to conclude, is a mystery because you could ask 100 people or a thousand people in Mendocino County and you would get a hundred or a thousand views of what happens unless you have read and believe the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because people just make up a hundred or a thousand different possibilities. And what Paul has been explaining, what he is going on to explain here is that the wrath of God is coming against men at the end. The day of judgment, the, the time of, of the evaluating of all souls that have ever been comes at the end. Wrath and, and judgment comes at the end. And the gospel is a real offer of life, eternal life and peace. And the gospel is also a promise of wrath. Ever think about the gospel in terms of its being a promise of wrath? And we also see one other thing here in this text, one other thing that the Spirit has, has put here, which is really worth our consideration. It reveals an obstacle to faith, an additional obstacle to faith which is darkened hearts. Darkened hearts is the last thing that is shown to us here. If you look at verse 18 here, we're going to consider some of the greatness of the mind of man. We're going to consider some of the capacity and the ability of the mind of man what we can see immediately, and this is kind of the, the, the central consideration in, in what we're looking at here. Verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth. The reason I say we're going to begin here looking at some of the greatness of the mind is that the mind of a man is capable of knowing what is true. Paul, Paul begins this, this charge. Who, who is the wrath of God coming against? What's well, coming against these unrighteous, ungodly men who suppress the truth? Their minds have the capacity of knowing what this thing is. Your mind has the capacity to know what what he is going to be speaking to us about here. And 
And, and I wonder if you have been applying your mind to some of these things or not. I, I fear we live in, a, in an age of triviality, and I'm afraid that maybe you don't apply your mind to these things. I'm convinced many years of your life have been spent not applying your mind to these things. Maybe since you've come to Christ, these things have begun to change. Verse 18 mentions that the minds suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That means there are at least pieces of and glimmers of the truth here and there. And and uh, I, I heard someone refer to this game that I saw at the fair when I was a kid. It's called Whack a Mole. Whack a Mole. I never played it, but the little thing would poke his head up and you would try to bonk his head down. There are certain truths that become evident to your soul that become evident to your mind and you don't like them. And you will whack them down and suppress them. The mind can understand these things. Look at verse 20. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. That's something the mind is doing. Only the mind sees invisible things of God. Since the beginning of the creation, his invisible attributes are seen. Maybe worse than that, being understood by the things that are made. Not only does the mind see them, they can understand them by the things that are made. Things that are made are trees and grass and dirt and the moon and the stars and things like this. So the mind seeing and the mind understanding by things that are made and the things that the mind knows and I'm going to say can know because I believe we are we are at such a point in, in the history of man that some minds maybe never apply themselves with much depth to this subject and these subjects. But what do the minds know? What does the mind know? The scripture says it knows, but let's, let's look at the, the, the verse there, understood by the things that are made. And then it says in italics, even his eternal power. The mind understands his eternal power and Godhead, which would probably be better rendered deity. The mind sees and comprehends. The mind sees and understands these things since the creation of the world. The data is there. The mind can comprehend these things. The mind knows eternal power. The word eternity you and I normally measure and, and we conceived of since the time we were little kids as, as unending time, right? Eternity is one plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one, and, and it just keeps going, right? But that's actually a wrong definition of eternity. Eternity is probably better understood as something that is outside of time. Time is the, the counting of things. And, and the way you and I try to understand eternity is take as much as you can imagine, you know, 10,000 or a bazillion, and then add one or another bazillion or something like that. But that's time. Eternity is w w without any boundaries, without any b 
borders of, of, of the way you and I reckon existence. So when we think about this concept of the mind knowing his eternal power by things that have been made, what does that mean? How does your mind comprehend eternal power? Something outside of time has something to do with the things you are seeing, like the the real tall pine tree over there that's going to fall on my tool shed. Here's, Here's what I believe the Spirit is revealing to us here. Have you ever seen something make a pine tree? Have you ever seen something make a leopard? Or an elephant? Or an ocean? Have you ever seen that happen? Let me help you. No. Why? Where did the ability for that thing to come into existence come? Did it come from some place in time? Have you ever experienced, in your experience of time and in this life, or in the life of your grandparents, has time and the existence of, of our world in time shown you the evidence of where that thing came from? And the answer is no. So by observing the creation, by observing things that you can see, it's very easy for you to determine It's something outside of my existence, something outside of my experience is the explanation for what I am seeing. You don't know unless you heard the testimony of the infallible Word of God telling you where it came from. And so when you see that, the only thing you can determine is that there are there, there, there must be a being and, and an authority and, and, and a wisdom and a power that is beyond me and beyond my experience and beyond the place where I live. It, it's something out of time. And you, you can know that by just looking at a tree. The question is, is do you? And then, and then what do you do once you have come to deal with that answer. It also says that they knew as Godhead. Now, when I try to define deity in my own terms, in your and my vernacular, if you will, when we try to understand what is a deity, when we are getting into really trying to understand what is being told to you, you have to understand that what's going on here is something that isn't human. Something, again, that isn't normal to your natural experience. So what is your power? What is your cleverness? What is your creativeness? So when you and I make something, we go find some boards or we go find some clay or we go find some cement and we can get some stuff that we got at the lumber yard or we, we start with this stuff and we make our thing. But when we look at the creation around us and we'll just kind of stay on the theme of the, the, the pine tree over there, where do you get the stuff to make that? 
Where do you get it? In other words, it came from some place you don't know where to go find that stuff. And you don't know how to put it together. The power and the intelligence and the creativity and the wisdom that, that is needed for a tree is, is super human. And, 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 and so both of these words are wrong. What I'm, what I'm trying to help you see is the explanation is not in human intelligence and in human power in human resources or natural resources. My resources are the pile of the dirt and, and the trees over there. I can turn a tree into a log if I can talk banning into putting it into his log board making machine. But I can't make wood from nothing. And you and I know these things by observing the creation. We, we can look at the creation and, and if we think for just a few moments we realize course there is a deity. Of course the explanation of everything is, is outside of this world and it is outside of our power and it is outside of our resources. The vastness and the beauty of the created world around us is astounding. To put it in an in, in entertaining illustration, what do ants make? What do ants make? Well, some, some ants make little mounds in the forest and some ants make little tunnels in the mud. And, and so when you look at an ant tunnel or when you look at an ant hill, what are your thoughts about the thing that made it? Do you, do you go, whoa, what amazing power, what amazing ability, what, a, what amazing creation. No, you're like, ants made this thing. And oh, I'll, I'll give credit and respect to ants. I think it's kind of neat that they can make those things. But what, what if I look at what a man can make in comparison? A man can make a car. A man can make a beautiful building. A man can make uh, a painting. And, and those are, are impressive too. But stack that up next to the things in the creation. When you look at the complexity of the creation, when you look at the vastness and the complication that is required to make the things you and I can observe in the creation are things we make are so simple in comparison. How do you explain the compatibility of male and female, men and women? How do you explain how man was made for woman and woman was made for man? Unless you know and trust and believe in the deity that we know is God who has created us. Men can know, men could know, men did know is what is being told to you and I here in Romans. They knew. Men know. This isn't their defect. This is actually one of the great things of the mind of man. A man can look at these things and a man can contemplate these things and he can come to some right conclusions. Now, these conclusions do not bring any man to the gospel, do they? These observations bring nobody to a sense of his lostness. They bring no man to a sense of his need for a redeemer and his, his need to apply hope and faith in the crucified and risen Christ. He can't know that until it's explained to him in the gospel. But you can know these things about 
God's eternal power and His deity. But the mind's mindness is your guilt. Let me explain what I mean by this. There is a quality of your mind, and there is a quality of man's mind that becomes the guilt of men. Look at verse 21, please. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. So let me summarize right on the front end here. The wrath of God isn't against your mind. The wrath of God is against the works of your mind. The wrath of God is against men who can take in what is there to take in, but you take it in and then you work on it. They knew truth. What did the truth that they knew result in? Let's answer that question saying what it did not result in. Did it result in men glorifying him as God? Did taking that in result in men thanking him as God? When you were six months old, when you were a year old, when you were five years old, were you admiring the things in the creation and praising God for the air you could breathe and the beauty of his creation? Wrath is against the works of the minds of men. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Back in verse 18, it said, Men actually came to suppress the truth. Another word you could use is the word hold, the word restrain, seize. If a man has a daughter like myself, my daughter's not married. She's She got married. She's married to a man. I, I imagine my daughter will be a good wife because she's a kind person. She's a relatively speaking selfless person. She's a, a generous person. She's a hardworking person. I think my daughter's going to be a good wife for somebody. And if my daughter has been a wife for a year or two and she makes meals for her husband and, and cleans his clothes and uh, keeps his house managed and in order and, and, and is kind to him and and does all the kinds of things you might imagine that a good wife does but he never thanked her for it he never appreciated her for it he never acknowledged any of her works any of her kindnesses, what would you expect the response of her father to be? What would you think her father thinks about something like that? I would be disgusted with this man. The scripture says that God's reply to man's inattention and his thanklessness is what? Wrath. God's reply to man's 
inattention, in his thanklessness, is wrath. The mind has been misused. Look at verse 20 again with me, please. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They're without excuse. It's inexcusable. The mind has been misused. The mind has been improperly applied. Why? It seems it is by default functioning this way. These things are there for the mind to see. The scripture says the mind sees and knows these things. It just doesn't do its proper work in glorifying God and in thanking God. And there is no excuse. Now, if you died tonight, early tomorrow morning, three in the morning, and the bailiff of the kingdom of heaven brings you to the judge, you're brought before the judge, and the only question before the jury is regarding the way you have applied your mind to recognizing the glories of God, the eternal greatness of God and your thankfulness to Him, if this is the only question before the jury, what's the verdict of the court? How do you stand before this court? I don't feel, don't feel that I'm misapplying this scripture in asking you to see how you honor and glorify the Eternal One. The point of Romans 1 and 2 is for men who generally don't see themselves very wrong before God. Generally, men don't see themselves as very particularly needy. The point of what we are studying and reading here is you must see yourselves ultimately needy, ultimately guilty, and that is the point of what we're reading here. What is the first charge brought against men in this court? You wouldn't recognize his eternality. You would not glorify him for his eternality. You would not thank him for his eternality. And the point of laying that out there isn't so you can remember a time in history when men were wicked. Or a nation in the world where men were stupid. The point of laying this out here is that we should all see that men are in a very, very difficult legal predicament. We're also going to consider an interesting law of darkness. There's an interesting law of darkness from verse 21. 
verse 20 ended saying they are without excuse okay there's the judgment they're without excuse they're guilty the wrath of God is against them but verse 21 goes because although they knew God they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened they became something here as, 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 a, as a byproduct of this defective function of the mind. As a byproduct of it, their hearts became dark. A leads to B. The guilt of your inappropriate adoring, your lack of adoring, your lack of thankfulness, turns into a darkness of heart is what he says. No glory, no gratitude becomes vain imaginations and darkened hearts. There is a, a, a process going on here. So this first process here has to do with a man and his mind and his attention to things of God. And he doesn't have it. And, and when the mind is not used in this way, when, when, when the mind's usefulness is used in the vain imaginations, when it's turned away from these things, it actually has this side effect. It has this consequential effect of darkened hearts. And what we see as we work on this section of Romans is, is it, it's, a, it's a long string of dominoes falling down. And the first one that goes is your attention to these high, holy, godly things. The eternality of God. The deity of God. Your reverence to it. Your gratitude to it. But the mind isn't functioning there. The mind isn't working on that. The mind isn't doing that. Instead, the mind is paying attention to what he calls vain imaginations, vain thoughts. Uh, another word for vain is, is fruitless or inconsequential. Stupid. What happens to the mind that begins to do that? He, he explains it. He's telling us what, what happens to this mind. It becomes dark. Hearts become darkened. John 1. Turn to John 1. We're going to look at a few verses because John kind of jumps ahead in history a little bit. John tells us a little bit about darkness. I want you to see the consequence of darkened hearts. John 1, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light. In the person of Jesus Christ, light. Verse 5, and the light shines in the darkness. Uh, I'm not talking about the sunlight, am I? I'm not talking about the light in the grass. I'm talking about soul, light. A person isn't a light bulb. Lord Jesus isn't the sunshine. But his life is the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. I'm talking about the light of your soul, your ability to perceive things of the soul. The light shines in the darkness. What did the darkness think about that, men and women? Look at your Bibles. What does the darkness respond to this light? Didn't comprehend it. 
the light made no sense to him. Why are some people not helped by light? Why are some people, maybe I should say, why are all people spiritually blind? Why, why, why are they in the dark, even though the light is shining there? Turn to John 3, verse 19. John 3, verse 19, and this is the condemnation. This comes right after John 3, 16. And this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. Why do they love darkness? My contention is, as Paul tells us why they love darkness. The mind that has not been applied to the opposite of vain things if the mind is applied to useful things and it is applied to the great and glorious things of the eternal God, but if the mind is applied to vain things, then the heart becomes darker and darker. Their foolish hearts are darkened. Dark hearts can't perceive, can they? You can't perceive in the dark. You can't see in the dark. You can't sense in the dark. John is speaking to us. He says, men love darkness. Well, why did, why did they love that? Because their deeds were evil. This is almost like flipping the passage in Romans around. They're doing evil things in Romans chapter 1, which leads to darkened hearts. Here in John chapter 3, it says it in the reverse order. It says, men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. You could flip it around. Their deeds were evil. So they love the darkness. The Spirit of God is the one Spirit speaking through the two men and they're saying the same things. Men, men are lost in the darkness. They cannot perceive in the darkness. Their foolish hearts are darkened. God ignores apply minds to vanity and their hearts grow dark the mind of man, while it can know of God's glory, goes, meh. And it isn't interested. So what happens to that heart who won't turn and, and gaze? Well, it introduces a complementary sin, and this, I believe, doubles man's peril because his heart will not see and his heart will not feel the only true hope that there is. When the, when the light of Christ comes to the world of men of darkened hearts, what do the men see? What do they want to see when he comes? They, they don't want to see anything. They, they don't want to see him. They don't want to know him. And these are all of Mankind, God's wrath is against these. God's wrath is against the men who wouldn't use their minds the way their minds could have been used. What light is there to overcome that darkness? What hope is there for men? And, and this is the gospel 
question. This is the gospel answer. I'm going to look at one more verse with you. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Did what? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six. He says, "For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge." the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just a couple things for us to notice here. Who commands the light to shine out of darkness? God is the one who commands the light to shine out of darkness. When a man is in the darkness of a dark heart, who commands light to shine there? God. God is the one who commands light to shine. And, and what is what is the result of this? Well, in the creation, it's it's the creation of light. When we're speaking about salvation in the gospel, it says that this is the God who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Now, interestingly, what is the first thing that's exposed here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when the light of God begins to shine in the heart? Glory of God. The glory of God is the thing that is revealed and that is, that is now, I, I would say, progressively revealed in the heart of a person. The first dawning of saving light is God doing a miraculous work in a darkened heart that reveals the glory of God. What is the first thing that fallen man is inhibited from being able to do, being able to glory in the glories of God? Man does not do that, is what we've been reading in the early parts of this passage. What reverses this? What brings man back to his spiritual senses, if you will? It is God himself shining his light in a dark heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to continue looking at this passage that, that Paul is explaining as he explains to you and I what is the defect of men? Why are men lost? Why is the wrath of God coming against men? It's because men would not glorify him as God nor give him thanks. And the first glimmer of light to come to you would come by God's very power of revealing Christ in you, which is your only hope of righteousness. Remember, the defect here is ungodliness, which is every way you are not like God, and unrighteousness, which is every way you are immoral. 
in thought or in deed. Every way you are not like God. Every way you are immoral. Every act of blasphemous thinking or God-demeaning speaking, thinking, acting. Are you the sovereign of your own life? What do you put your hope in week to week, year to year? A great insurance plan? A relief check or a political party? Don't fear those things. Fear the one who can take the soul of man and send it to hell. Why do men go to hell? You guys, it's righteousness or unrighteousness. The unrighteous are the ones who will not glorify him as God. Who is the only one who ever glorified him as God? The Lord Jesus Christ. Perfectly lived. Perfectly lived. And give a sacrifice for sinners. I hope I can compel you to take time, make time to meditate on and grow in your knowledge of the glories of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The glories of God are all around us. And I'm afraid we... I heard it said in a in a sermon, I don't know who said the sermon, it might have been Spurgeon, who's an old time preacher. But they were commenting on little children playing in the, in the streets of London in the mud puddles. And, and how happy the little children, the little kids are playing in these little mud puddles. And they, they, were, they were likened unto men who know no glories of God, who know no greatness of God. These little children playing in the mud puddles have no idea of the glory and the beauty of the seaside, the ocean and its vastness and its beauty. Instead, the the, the little kids in the mud puddles of London are happy there. The gospel light has come. And you shouldn't be people who who are smitten the trinkets of this world, the temporal promises of your political party, of the cars you want to have, or the decorations you're going to put in your house, or the retirement you're going to get to have. These things are nothing. Don't be like the little kids in the mud puddle. The glory of God is given to us in Christ. And it is incumbent upon you and I to apply our minds to knowing these things. Apply your mind to knowing these things and being thankful for them. Let's close in prayer. Almighty God, we praise you. Praise you for the incarnation, the perfect man who is fully God. Oh, great God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the offer and the hope of righteousness in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we praise you in his name. Amen.